I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Material Girls, a scholarly podcast about popular culture. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And hey, Marcel, have you seen the new Barbie movie yet? No, I haven't. We're recording this episode in the past and the movie hasn't been released yet. What about what about you? Have you seen it? No, same reasons. Yeah, it's not. A, it's actually not just not out yet, but I'm gonna. <laughs> I also am gonna and am like weirdly excited about it. Yeah. Okay. But listen, mm. instead of talking about a movie that we haven't seen, I would love it if we could just play a little game. I mean, it sounds like the beginning of a Saw movie, but okay. Wouldn't know. Haven't seen it. Mm, (laughs) Them. Haven't mm, seen any mm, of them. mm. Only know them from cultural references. Too scary. All right. Hannah, I have for you some Barbie trivia. Ooh, I like Barbie. I am bad at trivia. Let's go. This is going to be so fun. Okay. Good. Good. Question the first. Barbie hit the shelves in 1959. What is Barbie's astrological sign? Libra. Ooh, good guess. That is incorrect. It's Pisces. <laughs> oh my God, Pisces was my first instinct. Oh, you should have gone with And then it. I stopped and went back. I was like, she acts like a Libra. Question the two. Barbie's full name is Barbara Millicent Roberts. Hannah, is Roberts her name from birth or a name she acquired from marriage? Barbie's not married, so it must be her name from birth. Correct. Barbie has never been married. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Speaking of never been married, Mm. question three. Ken Carson is the name of Barbie's longtime on-again, off-again boyfriend. He was introduced in 1961. What is the longest duration the couple has been off, as in broken up? Wow. Officially broken up. I'm going to say... Two years. Great guess. It's seven years. Seven years! Their longest split was from 2004 to 2011. Wow. Marcel, quick follow-up question, actually, yeah, just yeah. on that one. Of course. How do you how do you know they were broken up? Did you ask? <laughs> did you ask Ken? All of the answers to all of these questions I did gather from the internet, but it is important to know that this information 
is official. It is like Barbie Cannon. So Mattel Corporation advertising campaigns, Mattel Corporation like press releases, Barbie lore is like basically celebrity gossip for a person who isn't a real person. Really good stuff. Okay. (laughs) Hey, Hannah, question four. How many sisters does Barbie have? One. Mitch. I mean, Skipper. One. Skipper. Uh, Skipper. That was close. Uh, Yes, Skipper is her sister. However, interestingly. Oh, does she have like a weird baby sister? Like a little toddler? Yes. Yes. Kelly. You're thinking of Kelly. Yeah. Kelly was introduced in 1995, but retired in 2010. So (laughs) what a sinister thing to do (laughs) as a child. Mm, Kelly's not actually working for us as a brand. We're going to retire her. Oh, so does that mean that Kelly is is dead? I I don't know. No, 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 no. It means that Barbie decided that having a four year old sister and no parents is sort of cramping her breezy lifestyle. And so she sent Kelly off to live with her aunt and uncle on a farm. Don't worry, Marcel. She's running free on a farm. Sure. Good. Good. All right. Question five. In addition to. Two making Barbies of color starting in the 1980s, Barbie has had friendships with women of color since the 1960s. What is the name of Barbie's first black best friend introduced in 1968? My gut says Whitney, but I think that's wrong based on your face and also just that I don't remember. But also, how can you how can you have friends in the 1960s that don't exist until the (laughs) 1980s so first the answer is christy christy o'neill was introduced in 1968 so here's what is getting sticky for us barbie is the name of the main barbie doll yes we call all of the dolls barbies but that's just a that's just a consumer thing like calling all tissues Kleenexes. Okay. They are not Barbie dolls. They are dolls. They're just dolls. And so Barbie has had friends of color since the 60s. because Christy, That you could buy. That you could buy. Christy is not a Barbie. She's a doll. Gotcha. Released by the Mattel Corporation. Correct. Correct. Gotcha. But starting in the 1980s, they made Barbie into a woman of color? They didn't change her canonically, but they they started making versions of Barbie. They started making like black Barbies. They started making Latinx Barbies. The lore is rich and deep and we simply don't have time. <laughs> Ask me more questions. Okay, question 6. Barbie ran for president for the first time in 1992. When did she most recently launch a presidential campaign? 2016. So close. 2017. (laughs) 2020. (laughs) 2020. Yeah. Candidate Barbie in 2020. And this time she came with a voter. (laughs) One voter. (laughs) And a campaign voter. And the Barbie who ran for president in 1992 was black. Very exciting. Wow. Incredible. Wow. Okay, last question. This is a true or false question, and it's kind of a leading question. I really only threw it in because it is funny. In 1997, the band Aqua released the song Barbie Girl. Hey, Coach, can we get a little stinger here? Hiya, Bobby. Hi, Ken. You want to go for a ride? Sure, Jump in. I'm a Barbie girl in the Barbie world. Yeah, thank you. It remains one of the best-selling singles of all time. And yet, Mattel sued Aqua for trademark infringement. Aqua then countersued Mattel for defamation. In 2002, the U.S. Court of Appeals ruled that, quote, the song was protected as parody and, quote, true or false. On throwing out the defamation suit against Mattel, the judge advised the parties to, and I quote, chill, end quote. I mean, I really want to say false. You made that up. Um, (laughs) But you know what? Based on context clues, I'm going to say true. And that rules. I know. It's so funny. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for indulging me. I had 
such a hoot putting that together. I loved getting a peek into the Barbie lore. And you know that it's just made me hungry to know more about this weird doll and the weird corporation that makes her. (laughs) Amazing. Well, let's get into it. Okay, Marcel, it's time to ask, why this? Why now? Which is a very materialist question. So a quick reminder and FYI for new listeners, what we're going to be doing here is a materialist critique, which is a kind of scholarly engagement with a cultural text. The materialism part means we look at modes of production, moments of reception, and the historical and ideological context for both. Mm, So doing a materialist critique gives us the opportunity to ask, why this? Why now? Or in the context of today's episode, why this at that time? Yeah, why this then? Why Why this, this, why then? (laughs) Why this, why then? (laughs) Okay, so we're interested in stuff that is zeitgeisty mostly because i love saying that word and that the zeitgeist changes over time because popularity ebbs and flows just like inflation sorry i'm reading the script here marcel is that a typo (laughs) ebbs and flows like inflation nope nope just a casual reference to economics to set the mood for this section so is that what we're gonna be talking about today yes we are gonna have a super fun conversation about economics but particularly we're gonna talk a little bit about nostalgia and about 90s Barbie nostalgia, because I gotta say, this new Barbie movie has me feeling like all my feels about the 90s. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's just you. Like, I feel like everybody's wearing 90s fashion now. I know. And you know what? It didn't look good then. And it looks fine now. It looks fine now. Follow your bliss, people. Whatever you're doing, if it makes you happy. Yeah, keep doing it. Just put all of those weird clips in your hair. Okay, Hannah, I have a question for you. Mm. All right. Tell me, did you play with Barbies as a kid? I know you had totally hair Barbie. I absolutely played with Barbies as a kid. We were one of those like hippie households where my parents didn't want to buy me plastic toys and they didn't like that Barbie presented a like unrealistic model of femininity and I didn't care. I wanted them. I wanted to play with them. I loved their clothes. I loved their fashion. So I had some Barbies. I did not have a ton of Barbies. I had three older cousins who had a like all female who had a remarkable Barbie Mm. collection. Mm -hmm. And when I would visit them, we would do these like epic Barbie make-believe games like soap operas just like elaborate narratives with their barbie collections what about you so i was an only child so i spent a lot of time playing in my room alone with my barbies and you know what i had very strong anti-barbie sentiment when i was a teenager but i gotta say i got i got over it Just the various, experiencing the various waves of feminism within your own heart. Yeah, Barbie was a huge part of my childhood. And, you know, I think like for us as millennials, part of the reasons why Barbie was so impactful for us in the 90s is maybe kind of specific and something that I want us to talk about a little bit. Maybe a lot. Maybe it's like kind of the whole thing (laughs) I want to talk about today. (laughs) So it's not just that like, we have nostalgia for 90s Barbies because that's when we grew up. Like, there was something specific about the 90s and Barbie. Why the 90s? So my research for this episode is very chaotic, and I'm going to try to keep it in check, okay? So Barbie's popularity peaked in the 90s. And so it's not a coincidence that, like, we remember her being so ubiquitous at that time. She has not always been that ubiquitous. There was a particular stretch in the 90s when she was, like, the thing. And there are a few reasons why I think this is the case. Uh, One that's kind of interesting is that our parents would have been seeing ads for Barbies for their entire lives. That's interesting. So we were like the first generation whose parents had like always known about Barbie. 
That's right. So it sort of naturalizes it as a toy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Other toy competitors at that same time were focusing largely on toys and games, quote unquote, for boys. Because of the patriarchy. Um, and so, because of, well, yeah, yeah, obviously. And because I guess boys need more toys, whereas girls can just help in the kitchen. Girls just need small spatulas <laughs> and small vacuum cleaners. Honestly, and- I don't know why this would be the case, but basically in the 90s, there was just this like huge untapped girl toy recipient market and Mattel filled it with Barbies. Yeah. And I remember there being like so many Barbies to choose from. Yes. So this was another thing that was particular to the 90s. Like we said, the Barbie had been around since 1959, but in the 90s, this is a a quote from (laughs) 90stoys.com. Good research, Marcel. I know. You know, I went everywhere for this episode. Quote, Mattel unleashed a whole new wave of creativity and fashion, end quote, through its Barbie dolls. So, like, we saw so many different styles of outfits and so many different options for, like, Barbie accessories. And I don't know why I didn't include this in here, but it also wasn't until the 90s that Mattel licensed Barbie merchandise. So there had not been Barbie merch prior to the 90s. So, like, all this stuff is Like Barbie branded, like, backpacks. Exactly. Yes. There was also, like, a Barbie fashion designer game available on CD-ROM. It's, like, one of the first, one of the first design games. And it was Barbie! And it was marketed at girls! Oh my God, we could do anything. We could have any job. Yes, yes, yeah. So the so the slogan, we girls can do anything, started in the mid-80s, but it really, really kicked into gear in the 90s when we got a whole new roster of like Barbie career possibilities. Yeah. And that is the same era that we got Barbie first running for president. And I think this is a big deal against an incumbent. Right. So like historically in the U.S., incumbents win. Barbie is here to get Bush senior out of office. Exactly. I know. Honestly, Barbie, iconic. So like Barbie is such a complex toy because of how some people see her as like sort of symbolic of women's emancipation right like she's she's unmarried she owns her own very fabulous home multiple cars a camper van um she basically like takes care of her siblings she has 500 jobs she has 500 jobs like she's got so many phd's <laughs> i don't know how she does it it's incredible whereas as you pointed out with like the concerns that your parents had she's also like very reasonably perceived as an anti-feminist toy because of the way that she sells girls on consumerism and on a very impossible body type and particular particular types of beauty standards and yeah i remember it being like a really sort of early feminist messaging for me was people pointing out how impossible it would be to walk if you had Barbie's feet and breast size (laughs) that like functionally they'd made a, they'd made a body that couldn't move through the world. And that was like, Whoa, metaphor. I know. Whoa. I know. Oh man. Okay. Okay. Another kind of key thing here is very, very sort of broad, and I I think really deserves a lot more research than what I had time to do. And, but it's so interesting. Do you remember, Hannah, this period in the 90s when we thought of toys as an investment? Yes. 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 The Beanie Babies craze. And definitely that was, I think the turning point into a sort of relationship to toys where adults would buy them, like would buy limited edition and then keep them in their packaging Mm -hmm. with this idea of like, if you get every new special edition Barbie and you have them all in your package in their packaging one day, dot, dot, dot profit. Like really everybody was very unclear about, I think about exactly how they would become rich, but you were gonna. Yeah, absolutely. And the toy companies 
leaned into that, right? Of course they did. It made people buy things. Exactly. Like they (laughs) packaged Barbies with the term collector's edition on the package. Like how fucking wild is it for the toy company to tell you that this product that they've just launched like two million of onto the shelves like is a collector's edition. It's like, oh well, I'm 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 gonna I'm, I better collect it. Oh my god! I mean, that alone, I feel like we could talk about all day, but it does sort of make me think. Like, okay, people are seeing this mass-produced thing and thinking, if I somehow engage with this economy of mass production in the right way. I will a win at it. Mm-hmm. Like I will become, I will beat the economy at its own game, mm-hmm. which does make me then want to ask like what's happening economically. Oh, Hannah. I, hate, I just don't understand the economy, but oh. what's going on in the nineties? God, you're It's bad, right? So, you're so good at this. So actually the nineties as a decade was a pretty mm-hmm. prosperous decade. Okay. But the first two years of the 90s were pretty bleak, especially for boomers. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't laugh at them. It was it was the recession. Oh, interesting. So let me give you as quick and dirty a lesson about the 90s recession and plastics manufacturing as I can, okay? Because this is the rabbit hole that I lost myself in Okay, putting this okay. episode This together. is what materialist critique will do to you. <laughs> You're just like, oh, that's really interesting, the rising production of plastic. <laughs> oh, what was going on, like, globally? Oh, no! <laughs> okay. <laughs> in 1990... Iraq, headed by Saddam Hussein, invaded Kuwait. So the U.S. and a bunch of allies invaded Iraq. This was the first Gulf War, okay? According to the Canadian government's webpage about the Gulf War, because it has one, I'm going to quote this, okay? Because this is... Government propaganda, let's go. This is some government propaganda. Quote, The West was very concerned with Iraq's ability to restrict access to a large part of the world's oil supply period. New sentence. The United States and other countries began to call out Iraq for their human rights abuses, period. Those two sentences do not follow. (laughs) I mean, they follow, they follow each other back to back. But they're like, listen, we were really worried about having access to that oil. So we were like, oh, you actually might be I think abusing human rights and we should probably, we should actually, for the good of the people, we should probably invade. Yeah. Yeah. So it is essential to understand that Iraq's invasion of Kuwait caused something called the 1990 oil price shock. Okay. So this was a, a spike in oil prices that contributed directly to the recession that impacted much of Western Europe, Canada, the U.S., Australia. Okay. Okay. Yes. Following the recession, most of these countries did great. Okay. Economy picks right back up. This is a pretty short oil shock compared to the the like OPEC crisis that happened in the in the seventies. It was only like technically nine months. Okay. And yet, it occupies such a like huge space in the psyche of like, oh well, the nineties recession. Okay. So this has me thinking about plastic manufacturing because. Where does plastic come from, Hannah? The same place as oil, right? Yes, it's, like it's a, another. It's, a, it's yeah. a petroleum. It's a petroleum product. byproduct. Yeah, yeah. So when we make plastics, we're drawing on the same resources, and so an oil shortage may be also a plastic shortage. Yes, it isn't that Exxon Mobil makes plastic, but Exxon Mobil is in bed with Procter and Gamble. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Of course. Yeah. So bear with my rabbit holing, okay? So big plastic and big oil are friends. Big plastic and big oil are siblings. They're big plastic okay. and big oil are are father son. Is big oil daddy? Big oil is daddy. Okay. Big plastic is sunny. Ew. <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> Gross. Simply okay. disgusting. So quick tangent, Hannah. Do you remember how in the 90s Reduce, reuse, recycle. Reduce, reuse, recycle. That's right. I have read a little bit about the fact that the incredibly widespread public education campaigns 
focusing on recycling were plastic manufacturer propaganda to discourage us from doing the actual important one, which is reduce, which is consume fewer plastics. Yes, absolutely. It was absolutely them being like, guys, don't even worry about it. You can use as much plastic as you want because just give it back to us and we'll for sure not put it in the ocean. Whatever, wherever we're going to put it, don't even worry. It's not the ocean. Don't even worry about it. It's cool. So like these public service campaigns were textbook public misinformation campaigns. Yeah. And it went on for decades. And we are right to be angry. Okay. So part of this misinformation campaign comes from the fact that in the 80s, plastic was experiencing a deteriorating public image. Okay. So NPR did some phenomenal research about this. They looked at industry documents throughout the decades, they found evidence that the executives from oil and gas giants and plastics people, so like Exxon, Chevron, Procter & Gamble, they met together in 1989 to discuss how to solve the image of plastics. And lo and behold, the 90s has a very mainstream, widespread public campaign about recycling plastics. And meanwhile, these companies continue to make billions of dollars selling us on new plastics. So this is wild. Okay, so here's why these things are related, right? So the oil shock of the 90s stresses out these companies at the same time that they're trying to restore plastics public image. And they can't do that if it's expensive to produce new plastic, right? New plastic has to be cheap enough. So the oil has to be cheap enough that no one's noticing that they're not recycling. So that also freaks out the plastics industry because it makes everything more expensive. Exactly. Okay. But they come back. They come back after nine months. They come back after nine months. I did my best at looking at like <laughs> the actual like it says here in the notes that you looked at Statistics Canada, I did, which I did. bless I you. Went... <laughs> so okay, so according to Statistics Canada, the plastic products industry grew steadily between 1990 and 1996. Okay, so that's despite an oil price shock, according to. The Association of Plastics Manufacturers, which is a European organization, global plastic production experienced, and I quote, continuous growth for more than 50 years, end quote, beginning in the 1950s. The British Plastics Federation has this incredible web page. It has like 10 posters depicting the history of plastic in like a series of significant moments. Okay. Gonna print those out and put them up on the wall. They call it, quote, the significant developments and milestone throughout the history of plastics dating back to 1284, end quote. And I need you to know, Hannah, it includes the introduction of Barbie in 1959. Of course it does. Of course it does. So we've got this plastics industry reeling from a brief recession, desperate to reintroduce plastic into people's homes, into people's consumer decisions. And then we've got essentially sort of a misinformation campaign that allows the plastics industry to like continue to produce plastic at an unsustainably like that functionally sort of subsidizes plastic production, like makes plastic cheap. And creates in the mind of the consumer like a reassurance that it's okay to produce new, not recyclable plastic because so much of it is going to get recycled anyway. So we're not thinking about plastic toys and thinking like, well, that's more garbage. We're thinking like, this is a toy. Especially not if we're being taught to treat them as collectibles. Exactly. And at the same time, we've got this sudden massive brand expansion of Barbie, not only into like so many new models of the dolls, but also like plastic lunch boxes and mm-hmm. functionally plastic backpacks mm-hmm. and plastic. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Barbie in the 90s was a fucking 
was working for Big Plastic. Oh, my God. Not only was she working for Big Plastic, Barbie is Big Plastic. Oh, my God. Yet another example of how corporate lean-in feminism ultimately sells us all out. We were impressed because she had 500 jobs, (laughs) but it turns out that she's been secretly fucking the planet. (laughs) The entire time. God damn it, Barbie. I know, I know. So you see why the why the research for this episode nearly killed me, right? Oh my god, but so <laughs> fun. So fun. On top of all of this context, are we also going to talk about theory? Yeah, we are. Yeah, let's oh my do god. that. Let's okay, do that now. Good, good. I'm so excited. <laughs> now it's time for the theory we need. Hannah, do you remember... Marshall McLuhan's concept, the medium is the message. Uh, Yeah, I mean, based on my encyclopedic memory, I think we discussed it at length in season five, episode seven of which, please. That is correct. Yes, we absolutely did. Could you please remind listeners and explain for the new folks in layperson's terms what the medium is the message means? Yeah, absolutely. So importantly, if you're confused by it, there's a um, Canadian government produced Heritage Minute in which you can see an actor playing Marshall McLuhan um, just saying it a couple of times. Uh, (laughs) Doesn't explain what it means, but he does say it. So if you could just cut in a clip here, coach. Are you saying that the medium is more important than the message it carries? No, no, no. The medium is not more important than the message. It, um... It's obvious. The medium is the message. Thank you. So McLuhan was essentially interested in the relationship between media and society. And his main argument was that society and its technologies are inseparable. So he argued that society and technologies are inseparable because the effect of any new technology is so powerful, so far-reaching that it will necessarily change the culture that embraces it. Yes, beautifully put, Hannah. Generally speaking, McLuhan is talking about what at the time were called electric technologies, which we don't really talk about that anymore because electricity is so ubiquitous now. Now we're thinking about digital. But he was deeply suspicious of these technologies because rather than extending the body like a shovel extends my arm, electric technologies kind of like they kind of replace brain function. Yeah, like how my phone remembers things so I never have to. Exactly. Yeah. So I've pulled a few quotations from McLuhan's Understanding Media, and I was hoping that you would read them for me. Oh, my God. I love reading quotes. Okay. Quote the first. The medium is the message because it is the medium that shapes and controls the scale and form of human association and action, end quote. Okay, that makes sense. It's like medium, the medium matters because the medium is what says like how we say things and who we can say them to. Correct. Good. Next quote. Quote. The effects of technology do not occur at the level of opinions or concepts, but alter sense ratios or patterns of perception steadily and without any resistance, end quote. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Yeah, absolutely. This is like the way that social media hasn't like created trolls like it does. It didn't turn people into trolls, mm-hmm. but it creates the sort of possibility of being inundated at a scale previously impossible by the opinions of assholes in a way that then (laughs) creates the perception that people are worse than they used to be. But it's not that people are worse. It's just that we can hear all of them all the time. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Okay, one more. And this is a long one. This is a thick quote. Quote, Technological media are staples or natural resources exactly. Oh, yeah, Marcel. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Good job, Marcel. Thank you. Thank you. you. Yeah, this is hot. (laughs) Exactly as are coal and cotton and oil. Mm. 
Anybody will concede that a society whose economy is dependent upon one or two major staples like cotton or grain is going to have some obvious social patterns of organization as a result. Stress on a few major staples creates extreme instability in the economy, but great endurance in the population. Cotton and oil, like radio and TV, become fixed charges on the entire psychic life of the community. And this pervasive fact creates the unique cultural flavor of any society, end quote. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. So <laughs> this is great, right? This is an extension of this idea that like the technologies that dominate our society shapes our economies, our understanding of the world, our psychic lives. This is at the heart of a lot of the arguments happening in the 1950s, for example, about like why Canada needed its own broadcasting corporation and its own television and its own because like, like we needed our own infrastructure because like mm-hmm. you need to have those technologies if your society is going to be like organized around them. Yes. Yeah. If your society isn't organized around your own infrastructure, it's going to get organized around somebody else's infrastructure. For sure. But there's also this like such an intriguing connection here between media and the like material resources that like allow an actual, you know, that are that are central to an actual economy and that remind us as the like plastic company propaganda does that they're kind of like that technologies of communication and our relationship to material resources are kind of inextricable. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Thinking of technological media as a natural resource and thinking of natural resources as media, I think really helps us to understand why, for example, Alberta, even though we know that we're running out of oil, Alberta, as a as a people, <laughs> incapable of thinking beyond oil and gas production, right? Yeah. That's the endurance in the population, right? So it's yes. like economy, unstable, solution, lean harder into oil and gas production. Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay, so media is a resource. Resource is a media. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. So, listen, there are a lot of moving parts in this episode. My brain is stressed to capacity. So now we're going to use McLuhan to segue into your friend and mine, Roland Barthes. Roland Barthes! Similar historical period, Mm -hmm. different language and country. Totally. So right around the same time, 1950s, that McLuhan is freaking out about electric technologies. Roland Barthes is writing a series of essays on things that were at the time current events. Not so current anymore, but still, I would say, prescient. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. So folks might be familiar with these episodes. They're published in a book called Mythologies. Mm. And we're going to look at Bath's analysis of the myth of plastic. Oh my God, is an essay in Mythologies about plastic? He does. He does. He had gone to a plastics exhibition and I think was like very stoned because he's like into (laughs) it. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god it's me am i the modern day bat <laughs> yeah it reads very much as like whoa <laughs> whoa man oh man it's have you seen cool. this shit so he in this essay describes plastic as quote more than a substance plastic is the very idea of its infinite transformation it is ubiquity made visible end quote Yes, yes, it is mass production. It is the possibility of mass production. It is the fantasy of an unlimited resource, even though we know it's not unlimited. Exactly. So so he is literally looking at, like, I guess at the exhibition, they like literally showed like how it goes from these like little crystals and transforms into objects. Starts as crystals? Don't, I we <laughs> simply I know, have no time to learn how plastic is made. So he says, quote, transforming the original crystals into a multitude of more and more startling objects. Plastic is, 
all told, a spectacle to be deciphered, the very spectacle of its end products, end quote. Oh, my God. <laughs> Rest in peace, Bart. He would have loved totally hair Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so true. Totally hair Barbie is absolutely a spectacle. What a spectacle. Of... That is the spectacle of the end product. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So what do you think, Hannah? Talk to me about this phrasing. Plastic is the spectacle of its end products. What do we make of this? I mean, it's so interesting because I feel like culturally, we don't see, engage with, or talk about plastic as a raw material. That's right. In a way, like with so many other raw materials, we have a kind of shared cultural sense of like, Paper is made from trees and we yeah. think about trees. I said we don't have time to get into how plastic's made, <laughs> but I don't know. And that's really surprising because I came up in the era of short educational videos taking you inside a factory to show you how something's made. Totally. But I think also that might be partly because plastic is also not the raw material, right? Plastic is the product. It's the byproduct of petroleum. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So even my attempt to think about plastic itself fell immediately into the spectacle of the end product. Yes. Ugh. Yes. Okay. 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 Another thing that Bath points out that is so mythical about plastic mm. is that, and I quote, it can become buckets as well as jewels, mm. end quote, mm -hmm. and... Mm -hmm. Because of plastic, quote, the hierarchy of substances is abolished. A single one replaces them all. The whole world can be plasticized and even life itself since, we are told, they are beginning to make plastic aortas, end quote. Life in plastic, it's fantastic. Plastic is particularly, you know, in the mid 20th century, being positioned as this like, like it's a similar era to brutalist architecture mm. when they were making everything out of concrete. There's yes. this real interest in the sort of democratizing function of a single medium that everything could be made out of. Yes. And that democratization is something that is highlighted in this last long quote that I would love for you to read for us. Quote, the fashion for plastic highlights an evolution in the myth of imitation materials. It is well known that their use is historically bourgeois in origin. But until now, imitation materials have always indicated pretension. They belonged to the world of appearances, not to that of actual use. They aimed at reproducing cheaply the rarest substances, diamonds, silks, feathers, furs, silver, all the luxurious brilliance of the world. Plastic has climbed down. It is a household material. It is the first magical substance which consents to be prosaic. Ugh, I love part. For the first time, artifice aims at something common, not rare. And as an immediate consequence, the age-old function of nature is modified. It is no longer the idea, the pure substance, to be regained or imitated. An artificial matter, more bountiful than all the natural deposits, is about to replace her and to determine the very invention of forms. End quote. Yeah! <laughs> yeah! Okay, so yeah. Yeah. we've got now, like, when plastic was being used to imitate other things, it continued to center the materiality of those other, those originals, quote unquote, the diamonds, mm -hmm. the silks, the feathers, the silver, you know, the ideal was that thing. And we were just trying to imitate it. But the entry of plastic into every aspect of our day-to-day -day lives mm -hmm. decenters it as imitation of another sort of naturally produced thing mm -hmm. and turns it into like we don't we're not imitating anything plastic is just what stuff is made of and in fact we can make so much stuff out of plastic that now you don't have to base it on other things you can just invent 
new whatever, because plastic can be anything. That's right. Plastic can be anything. Plastic is cheap. If we think about toys, you can play with plastic toys. You can drop them on the ground. You can trade them. You can throw them in the garbage when they're no longer like fun. And it doesn't matter. Yeah. Because there's always more plastic. Yeah. And then if we go back to McLuhan and his mm-hmm. argument that like a society is transformed by the ubiquity of new technologies, mm-hmm. plastic is like the medium writ large, mm-hmm. you know, from the 50s escalating into the 90s. Mm-hmm. Like plastic becomes the sort of the medium around which our like collective imaginations, our understandings get reshaped. Mm -hmm. So it's like no surprise at all that like our sort of collective imagination around, say, a really central cultural conversation like gender would actually be something that we are working out via the literal materiality of plastic. Yes. As I was putting this together, I was thinking like, okay, so like, if the medium is the message, is the message of plastic just plastic? Like, is the message of plastic just consumerism? Just consumption? Endless consumption? Oh my God, Marcel, I've got full body chills and I am (laughs) really ready to hear what you're going to do in this essay. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Okay, Marcel, you've set us up for a big claim. What's your hot take? Okay, I really want to start with a caveat that this claim is more theoretical than any hot take I've ever had before because I don't have the data. Okay? It's 17 points long. <laughs> yes. Because it's very theoretical. <laughs> okay. 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 I everybody I need you to know that usually are are in this essay I will statements are like one to two sentences, and Marcel's yeah. is five bullet points. <laughs> yeah, with multiple multiple sentences in each bullet point. Okay, I'm ready. ready? I'm ready. ready. Okay. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the recession in the early 90s, paired with the increasing lobbying power of plastics manufacturing and the oil and gas sector, created a consumer culture wherein plastic toys proliferated, yet were simultaneously perceived as valuable, a potential investment in one's future, something to buy and something to save. As an iconic toy whose popularity peaked in the post-recession climate of the 1990s, Barbie is a perfect microcosm of the myth of plastic. Like the medium out of which she is made, Barbie gives us the illusion that Mm. she can be anything and that by living vicariously through her, so can we. But Barbie can't actually be anything. She can only represent the fantasy of possibility. She is pretense incarnate. Moreover, our capitalist relation to Barbie is likewise a pretense. Many of us were encouraged to believe that collecting Barbies would be an investment in our own financial success. We collected Barbies that were marketed to us specifically as collector's editions. But the reality is that so many people collected these special collector's editions that we ensured our future market oversaturation, meaning that these collector's editions are worth less than what our money would have been worth if we just stuffed it in a mattress. Ultimately, Barbie is the promise of liberal feminism. She provides an optimistic and intoxicating incentive to literally buy into petrocapitalism, a mode of production that has and continues to threaten the possibility of our own futurity 
in this essay, I will. Okay, so I was right when I said earlier on that Barbie's just leading feminism yes. fucking us all over. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, oh my God. I'm uh, sorry, that was such a long, it was such a long thesis, but every part was essential. <laughs> I feel like I just came. I... <laughs> I'm gonna go I'm gonna go lie down and smoke a cigarette. <laughs> That's it. That's all I got. That's all I got. I'm out. I'm out for the rest of for the rest of this recording. For the rest of the series. I mean, that's it. That is like it's so complex and I love it. And okay. So as I'm wrapping my brain around all the moving parts of this. I want to start with the feminism and work backwards. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Barbie herself, she's not a medium. Plastic is her medium. Barbie is a metonym for plastic. For folks who haven't been studying classical rhetoric recently, um, a metonym is a rhetorical device where something that is a part sort of rhetorically stands in for a larger whole. So, for example, when we are talking about the large, like, media infrastructure that produces and disseminates news, we will often call it the press. Mm, mm -hmm. And that's a metonym because the press is like the physical thing that you print newspapers on it. But we refer to this whole complex industry as the press or the royal family and everything involved in the monarchy is sometimes referred to as the crown, mm-hmm. which is like the one physical object. So similarly, Barbie has a sort of metonymic relationship to this really complex industry that undergirds her existence, her production, her materiality, her popularity, mm-hmm. and that is plastic. As a medium and a material, which McLuhan demonstrates to us are kind of inextricable in late capitalism, Mm -hmm. which is such a helpful thing to remember that like the medium is the message means that the message is the meat like that they go back and forth that like understanding the materiality of media also means you can understand the media functions of material things Mm -hmm. and we should make a whole podcast about understanding the relation between media and materiality Isn't what a great what a great idea yeah this is it is what we're doing it is what it is uh-huh. yeah that's I it can't that's do it more than i already did <laughs> i can't do it any harder can i just quickly interrupt you to share with you a really really powerful Yet another quotation (laughs) from yet another reading. Marcel, you did 4,000 times more work for this episode than I... I I couldn't... I couldn't stop. Yeah. I couldn't stop. And then I got to a point where I was like, I got to start hyperlinking all of my my sources because I can't keep track. I couldn't stop consuming. (laughs) Good joke, coach. Good joke. Okay. 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 So... I wasn't sure when this would be useful, so I just sort of plugged it in at the end as like a like just a little just a little treat that we can we can pull in at any time. A dessert quotation, just a little yum. dessert quotation. Okay, this little nugget comes from uh, an article written by Charlie Squire, which Coach sent me while I was doing research for this episode, and which Coach sent me because friend of the pod Jackson Bird had like restacked it on Substack uh, which is a new social medium that I'm slowly trying to I don't to, know what it means I, to restack something me neither but, but it sounds bless you Jackson sounds cute um, anyway so okay the article is called Mattel Malibu Stacy and the dialectics of the Barbie polemic we simply don't have time to discuss what a dialectic is we absolutely do not and it's not it's not because neither of us understand it. <laughs> but if you, listener, are mm-hmm. somebody who like really understands, like really gets what a dialectic is, write it and let us know. <laughs> and we'll <laughs> and we'll have you on an episode to explain it to us. Okay, so here is the quotation. Okay, you okay. ready? Yeah, so ready. 
when we speak about Barbie, it is shockingly easy to recognize her personhood, to describe who she is. It is much harder to talk about Barbie in terms of what she is, a combination of plastics available for purchase. End quote. Marcel, I'm going to point out that in reading that quote, you accidentally changed the phrase what it is to what she is, which is pretty a pretty good indication of exactly what the quote's saying. Oh my god. Okay, so let me let me just reread that so we can hear the difference. Quote, when we speak about Barbie, it is shockingly easy to recognize her personhood to describe who she is. It is much harder to talk about Barbie in terms of what it is. A combination of plastics available for purchase. It feels wrong. End quote. Feels wrong. It. Yeah, it does feel wrong. It feels wrong to be like Barbie, like it. It's a chunk of plastic and a very elaborate marketing campaign. Yeah, 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 yeah. Barbie is just marketing for plastic. Which is exactly what Aqua's song is saying. Mm. Aqua's song, I mean, honestly, like, life in plastic, it's fantastic. You can brush my hair, undress me anywhere. Like, I kind of get why Mattel was like, shh, Quatch, don't say it out loud. (laughs) Stop talking about the fact that this is a plastic thing. Imagination, life is your creation. Come on, Barbie, let's go party. (laughs) The other thing that this just evoked for me is the conversations happening around plastic surgery in the 90s, which I feel like sort of the 90s was the era of the mainstreaming of plastic surgery. And while plastic is being used in a different sense in the phrase plastic surgery, because like plastic is also an adjective that refers to something being like malleable or changeable. So like plastic surgery is about like sort of the malleability, like the transformability of the human body via surgical intervention, the discourse around plastic surgery conflated the two in the sense that it was like, oh, we're turning our bodies into plastic. Like we're, and so we get like conversations about like breast implants as though they're like chunks of plastic. Though, like, I don't know, is silicone plastic? I assume it's a petroleum byproduct. It might, so there might actually be like the literal inserting of plastic, of like, plastics or plastic-esque things into our bodies and that's kind of the whole point about like plastic arteries and plastic that like our bodies are becoming plastic the adjective in part via what Bart is saying about the sort of replacement of nature with the ideal of plastic as like a space of total imagination and there's Like, I think some sort of intriguing liberatory possibilities in that, in the sort of decentering of nature as the sort of primary way to think about us and our bodies. But it is like that era of like our bodies have become transformable is tied into these anxieties about like, what if we ourselves just become plastic things? Right, right, right. And like, I wonder if maybe the like the flip side of that is a very I think healthy hesitancy or or resistance to the idea of unproblematized plastic consumption, right? Mm. So like you're totally right that centering nature can create a kind of essentialism mm. that forbids imagination, right? And play, yeah, but at, but at the same time, like the the total replacement of nature with the sort of endless possibilities of plastic becomes a way that sort of consumerism and capitalism can totally reshape our society. Like yeah. if plastic becomes the medium, then that is how we're sort of shaped imaginatively around sort of this fantasy of an unlimited resource that like recycling itself is a fantasy of unlimitedness, right? That like, don't worry, this plastic can go back into the big bubbling plastic vat 
we'll just melt it down and we'll make new plastic out of it and it never will never run out. Don't even worry about it. Don't even worry about it. Don't even think about it. I mean, this also makes me think about how much Barbie has become a queer icon. Mm. Mm -hmm. As we have learned from our reading of Susan Sontag's Notes on Camp, Mm -hmm. like camp aesthetic is a sort of celebration of the mass produced and a celebration of surfaces without substance. And Sontag's argument is that a big part of that is that queer people have understood that like a focus on appearances and aesthetics might be a way to get liberation essentially Mm -hmm. like if we agree to do everybody's makeover cut everybody's hair and redesign everybody's homes Mm -hmm. maybe they won't hate crime us or put us in prison for being gay Mm -hmm. like that's that's Mm -hmm. the idea right and so this this fixation on surfaces, on plasticity, on transformability, on play, on artifice, like that all makes sense to me as part of a conversation about queer aesthetics as well. And, 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 but, but, and all of the possibilities that plastic gives us are still possibilities without plastic but because of the power and because of the way that plastic has fundamentally shaped our society we can't even imagine these kinds of possibilities without feeling like plastic is the thing that makes them possible do do you see do you kind of see what i'm saying like i really do see what you're saying cuz the medium's the message yeah yeah your point, Marcel, about the way that like plastic is the way in which we imagine unlimitedness when in fact imagination does not need to function through a metaphor of plasticity mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the absence of plastic would not mean the absence of creativity or a return to some sort of like essentialist fixation on nature really makes me think about how like the linking of plastic to unlimited possibility is fundamental to a global economic order that wants us to understand petroleum as synonymous with endlessness as synonymous with unlimited possibility that wants to link those two things together inextricably so that when we think about an end to plastics an end to petroleum an end to oil so many people immediately start thinking about the loss of freedom that's right that if we can't have all the plastics we want then do we lose the ability, like, do we become less free? Do we globally become less free? Do we become imaginatively less free? Do we have to return to some pre-plastic world? Even financially or or um, class-based freedom, right? Like Barth was saying about the democratization of plastic. So like, oh, well, all of a sudden, is it only going to be rich people who can have certain things because the rest of us can't afford to have those things? Yeah, that fundamental infiltration of plastic into the imagination of what it means to be free. I mean, into the imagination of what it means to imagine really now leads me to think that Barbie is actually like a really good explanation for our global climate crisis. Honestly, Hannah, I think you're right. You still you're still going to see the movie, though, right? Can I be honest? After this conversation, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, probably. I'm probably going to go see it, but like, I might not. I'm going to see it, but I'm just going to yell Bart quotes at the (laughs) screen while I'm there. I'm going to see it, but I'm going to be real, real critical of it. Material Girls is a Witch Please production and is distributed by Acast. You can find the rest of our episodes and our other podcasts on Acast or at ohwitchplease.ca. 
at that same URL, ohwitchplease.ca, CA people, we're Canadian, CA. You can also sign up for our amazing newsletter, read our transcripts, check out our merch, find our reading lists for episodes, and learn more about our Patreon. I just started to feel really bad about how much of our merch is probably made of plastic. If you have... (laughs) Which please needs to divest from plastic. (laughs) Help! If you have questions, comments, concerns, thoughts about plastic and our, you know, the mechanisms through which we continue to proliferate it by selling you merch or or praise, come hang out with us at ohwitchplease on Instagram or Twitter. Or if you like to tick the talk, you can come visit us at ohwitchpleasepod on TikTok. You can also check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ohwitchplease. Special thanks to everyone on the Witch Please production team who are keeping all of the social media rolling, including our digital content coordinator, Gabby Iori, our social media manager and marketing designer, Zoe Mix, our sound engineer, Eric Magnus, and our endlessly patient executive producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. At the end of every episode, we will thank everyone who has joined our Patreon or boosted their tier to help make our work possible. Our enormous gratitude this episode goes out to Camille L.R., Chris V.N., Erica L.F., Eka S., Anne V. Audrey W. and Michelle Y. We'll be back next episode to tackle another piece of pop culture through a whole new theoretical lens. But until then, later gators. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.